Well, a cracking show coming up for you and a day of good and bad news. Let's start with the bad news first. Uh, well, we're into a third wave of the coronavirus and it's only likely to peak in the first week of July. That's the insight from Ryan Note, Chief Executive of Discovery Health, a uh, in-depth interview coming up. Then we will be hearing the good news, which is Neil Froneman is celebrating tonight. You might recall he was on this program a while ago saying that government should allow the private sector to build meaningful-sized power plants. Well, they have done so. Uh, today, Sura Maposa uh, announcing the um, news that has been welcomed throughout the economy and might spark an infrastructure boom. We've got Pitful Yun as our guest co-host tonight. And then a lovely story to close the show tonight. Job Maseko, a South African World War II hero, unknown, but who knows, he might actually become known because of efforts from someone in the UK. All of that coming up in the next hour. Bride Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bride Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. And that's a cue for my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts. The JSE All Share Index was flat today, but it was far from boring at 67,700. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against all the major currencies to 13 rand 62 to the dollar, 19 rand 27 to the pound, and 16 rand 59 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,892 an ounce. Brent crude is up at $73 a barrel. A Kruger rand will put you back approximately 27,000 rand. And Bitcoin is trading at 516,000 rand per coin. If I have to look at the major moves for the day, the Foschini Group, they came out with results. Very interesting. 5% down at the beginning of the day in the morning session, up 3.5%. That's a 10-day intraday swing. Very interesting there. Vukile keeping up good momentum. Just just uh, hold on on to Foschini Group. That's a huge swing, 8% in the day. Do you think uh, analysts initially panicked and then did a closer look at the numbers and said, hang on, this isn't so bad. It's so tough to say. Alec was for a, a nearly 50 billion uh, rand company. It's huge. A 10% intraday swing is a 5 billion rand difference in valuation. So I, I'm trying to uh, comprehend what's happening there. I'll have a, a better look at it a bit later, but very, very interesting and one to watch going into Friday. If I look at Vakile, keeping up the momentum from the results yesterday, up another 3%. That's 10% now in, in, in on a rolling two-day basis. Some of the losers, Sappy down 2%, uh, Nedbank down 2%, and RMH similar. If I have to look at the U.S. markets, why this is interesting, their CPI figures came out red hot, 5%, all-time highs, Dow, Dow Jones Industrial Average, S&P 500, and NASDAQ, all about half of a percent up. Very interesting day in the markets, Alec. Highest inflation numbers in the United States in almost two decades, and share prices go up. Can you believe that? And and this whole inflation thing, this has been the one thing that's kept markets uh, uh, going adjacent for a period of time, I would say. Now the, the, the figures come out red hot, 5%, expected 4.7%, and markets in the green. Very interesting. I shouldn't exaggerate. It's the highest inflation in the United States in 13 years. So not quite two decades, but still, that's a heck of a long time. Uh, We also saw a good improvement for Sassel. You were talking about the hedging policies yesterday. Maybe, again, delayed reaction? Very interesting, yeah. I think that Sassel price is just going up with Brent crude. The, the the hedging strategy is is interesting and it's something to ponder on. But markets obviously overlooking that they lost a bit on the hedging strategy for 2020, 2021. The figures unknown yet. It'll come out with results in a few months' time. Um, but markets just brushing that off. And and as as been the um, what's been happening over the last 12 months, things are just going up. This market report was made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Time now for the flash briefing. South Africa's government will allow private investors and companies to build their own power plants with up to 100 megawatts of generating capacity without a license. This is up from a previous limit of 1 megawatt. 
the move should help ease energy shortages that have hobbled Africa's most industrialized economy since 2005. President Cyril Ramaphosa said in a televised address that there is no doubt that the prospect of a continued energy shortfall and further load shedding presents a massive risk to our economy. While South Africa has the highest number of COVID-19 infections on the continent, it is struggling to accelerate its vaccination drive. So far, just over one and a half million people in the nation of 60 million have received a vaccine dose. Of those, about 480,000 are healthcare workers, while the rest are mostly elderly people who got the first of two doses of Pfizer's vaccine. South Africa's government has found a strategic equity partner for state-owned carrier South African Airways. This is according to three people familiar with the matter. Details of the announcement are expected on Friday, says Bloomberg, which notes that Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon was scheduled to brief the media earlier this week. More than 150 Oxford dons are boycotting Oriel College and refusing to teach its students in protest at its decision to keep the Cecil Rhodes statue. The Telegraph newspaper reports that this is the latest incident in the culture wars engulfing British universities. A small group of workers will find something new in their 401k plan starting in July, the option to invest in cryptocurrency. That's according to BizNews Premium Partner, The Wall Street Journal, which says that for us all Inc., a 401 provider, announced a deal with the institutional arm of Coinbase, a leading cryptocurrency exchange that will allow workers in plans it administers to invest up to 5% of their contributions in Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin and others. That was your Biz News Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit biznewsradio.com. Ryan Noach is the Chief Executive of Discovery Health. And uh, good to be talking to you on a day, Ryan, when we got the numbers that came out for infections in South Africa, infections of COVID-19, spiking to 8,800. Now, just for context... On Tuesday, they were 4,200, and Monday, 3,200. Looking at the graphs, it, it definitely is a spike, but I guess the question has to be, are we now really going into this third wave, or might this be a st- statistical aberration? <laughs> I think you've got COVID of the tongue there, Alec. <laughs> Feels like it. <laughs> um, Alec, thanks for having me. Uh, great to chat to you again. Uh, You must keep in mind, firstly, that the stats reported on positive infections are actually a function of the amount of testing that's being done. And we have seen, um, you know, fluctuating numbers of tests done. What's very important is the test positivity rate. The test positivity rate gives us a sense of all the tests that are being done, how many are coming out positive. And that's well over 10% at the moment, 12% on the last number that I saw. Anything exceeding about 3% is concerning and means that the epidemic is out of control. Um, and so I can't really explain the jump from 4,000 to 8,000, maybe hidden in the number of tests that were performed and so on. But certainly on our own data, which you know is a separate data source to that national data that you're talking about, we are unquestionably now in a third wave, uh, which is progressing around us. And it's a very dangerous time for all of us. It's interesting from our perspective, and these are just surveys of one or two, but for the first time since the pandemic began, people that here at our office here at BizNews that we know uh, are actually testing COVID positive and having to self-isolate at a far greater degree, it feels, anyway, than at any other time in the uh, since the pandemic began. Is this something that is being experienced nationally or just uh, maybe, again, a statistical aberration. Yeah, I mean, the anecdote that you give is interesting, Alec, though, you know, of course, on a population level, not that relevant. Perhaps the the one point that's important for your anecdote is that Gauteng is uh, a hotbed at the moment where we are seeing a rapidly rising wave of COVID-19. And so with your offices in Gauteng, it may well be that you know, the Gauteng exposure is, is, is leading to the anecdote that you're experiencing. But when we step back and we compare wave one, wave two, and the current wave that we're in, we're seeing a, a lower, slower trajectory on the increase of the wave, but it's certainly building, um, you know, quite worryingly around us. Uh, test positivity rates are around 12%. If you compare the seven-day average of infections, 
to the 40-day average of infections. In other words, what's happening in the last week versus what's been happening in the last month and a half, there's a significant acceleration. It's materially up, way above the 30% required to define um, another wave. Um, And we are now starting to see, certainly in our data, a large number of hospital admissions and unfortunately some mortality as well. That typically follows two to three weeks after the wave begins. We're already in that phase of the disease progression. Do you have any understanding of how big this wave might be? Uh, We've got various projections. Uh, Our base case that we've modeled for this wave on a national basis is that it should hopefully peak lower than the second wave peaked. We do have a high road case or a worst case scenario uh, where it peaks higher uh, we think the most important thing is how people behave. Uh, I'm aware there's, you know, COVID fatigue around and behavioral fatigue, but this is the time to wear a mask and remain socially distanced and remain outdoors and in well-ventilated areas if you're not at home. Um, and so that's the biggest determinant of spread, of course. Our mathematical models lead us to believe that more than 55% of the population has already been infected with COVID-19. There's different prevalence levels in different parts of the country. Quite worryingly for Gauteng, it has one of the lower infection rates per capita based on our mathematical model to date. That means that there's less immunity in Gauteng, and so we may see a worse wave in Gauteng this time around. What about the Western Cape? The Western Cape has come up very slowly. Uh, Over the last three weeks, we've been worried about the Free State, the Northern Cape, the Northwest, and Gauteng. KZN's infections are very low, but the Western Cape is now, just in the last few days, uh, starting to pick up. Quite different to the trend, the regional trend we've seen in the country on other waves, where the Western Cape has tended to lead the wave. Uh, We do think that there are already high levels of immunity in the Western Cape, following, um, you know, a deep infection penetration from the previous waves. And this may be a reason why it's been a laggard, but there have been an in- there has been an increase that we've seen in the last few days. Ryan, when you talk about 55%, that number, how important is that relative to when this thing might end with herd immunity? Well, I mean, this is a very complicated question you're asking. Let me say a few things. Firstly, People are surprised when I say 55%, um, and it is a mathematical model working backwards from the natural excess deaths rate. The Medical Research Council reports the excess deaths in the country, and if you assume an infection fatality rate, you can work back to how many people are infected. What gives us confidence around this 55% is various antibody studies that have been done by various organizations including the South African National Blood Service and University of Cape Town and others, where they found antibody levels that are above 50% in populations that they've surveyed. So we do have corroborating clinical data to support that mathematical assumption. The epidemiologists tell us that herd immunity is achieved when we reach about 70% of the population infected. Wow, so and we so quite a long, the way, absence, long way short well, then. Well, well, here's the, here's the curved ball, Alec. In the absence of reinfections, uh, second and third infections, uh, then we're, <clears throat> we're getting closer towards that 70% mark in some parts of the country. Uh, in Gauteng, as I said, we've seen a lower prevalence of infections, so probably more like at the 40% level, so some way to go still in Gauteng. The curved ball, which is extremely worrying from a clinical point of view, is that we are seeing in our data quite large numbers of reinfections. We've got about 1,200 members that we've studied in our own data who have experienced a second infection. Most of them got that second infection during wave two following an original infection in wave one. And um, the, uh, the mathematical calculation behind it shows us that you are at a 33% risk of catching, catching it a second time during wave two after wave one. We now have identified three individuals, only three, but it's the start of wave three. We've identified three lone individuals who've contracted it three times. Wow. 
um, wave one, wave two, and now during wave three. And this is brand new data uh, from this week, actually. How, bad, and, how badly infected are they? In other words, how sick are they? We've seen no difference in the morbidity of the reinfected cohort versus the, the original cohort. In other words, there were people in the second re- in the reinfection group who landed up admitted to hospital. There were one or two unfortunate fatalities. So there hasn't been a difference in morbidity in the second infected group. Now, wave two was characterized by the development of a variant, which really drove some of the uh, transmissibility of that, that wave, that period through December and early January this year. Um, there, of course, is another variant floating around the world at the moment, uh, one which is known as Delta which in fact was first recognized in India, but nobody knows where it originated, of course. Um, and, you know, whether, in, whether this Delta variant is driving the third wave in South Africa, we don't know yet. We need more genetic testing to understand that. But it does seem like the variants are able to achieve immune escape. Um, a feature of the Beta variant, which drove our second wave, was that not only did it have higher infectivity. In other words, it spread easier from person to person, but it was also at some stages more virulent and able to achieve immune escape. Uh, The good news of all of this, Alec, because I don't want to be depressing, I'm optimistic, is that the vaccines work. The vaccination is effective against all of these variants so far. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is we need to move very fast with a mass vaccination program. How's it going with your side, Discovery's vaccinations? It's been, to be quite frank, a phenomenal experience Uh, for me personally and for us as a company. uh, It's it's just been amazing. We've we've delivered more than 40,000 vaccinations now, around about 40,000. We're doing about 2,300 a day. Um, and, you know, as a health insurer, we, we often don't ever meet our policyholders, our members. Um, many of our members engage with us through a call center or online um, or, you know, we, we, we pay their claims in the background, but we never meet them. And so we, we've got thousands of people. They're not only our members. They're all South Africans, but many of them are our members who are just coming through our building at the moment. We're vaccinating them. Many of them are because of this cohort being elderly, have been in isolation for extended periods of time. It feels like I'm back in the wards where I can actually see people healing in front of me. It's a great experience. It's been a great privilege for us to be able to administer these vaccinations. Um, and uh, we, we want to do more and go faster. And the vaccinations are clearly uh, critically important when one has a look at what's going for instance in the UK yesterday uh, here in South Africa we had 127 deaths in the UK there were six uh, and but still seven and a half thousand infections so in the US as well the, the numbers are down dramatically uh, because of the vaccination rate when when you add it all together Ryan with the 55 percent total infections with the vaccinations that are now starting to catch up, where do we get to a point where it becomes less of a, of a threat, uh, this pandemic? Uh, this is a difficult question to answer. Um, my answer would be when we vaccinated close to 70% of the population. Uh, when we look at the Israeli, the British and the American experience who are well advanced in their vaccination campaigns, there's irrefutable evidence that the vaccination works. It does what it's intended to do, which is reduce the severity of the infections so that the majority of the infections are really almost asymptomatic with very few hospital admissions and very few deaths. But importantly, we're seeing it also reduces the rate of person-to-person infection. So even with the Delta variant now causing a spike in infection count in the U.K., Unlike all the other spikes in infections in the UK, what they've seen is very few hospital admissions, almost no morbidity associated with this small wave that they're living through at the moment. Um, And so my answer to your question, Alec, is get everyone vaccinated, especially the ones that are at risk, 
and we will be able to return to living a relatively normal lifestyle. Maybe not pre-COVID normal. We'll have to take precautions always, um, but certainly get the economy productive um, and resume some normal sporting and social activities, which is critically important for mental health and for well-being. South Africa's total deaths are 57,310. Obviously, every death is is a tragedy, but that is one-tenth of 1% of the population. Uh, In the US and the UK, they're probably running at about two-tenths of 1% of the population, which, again, uh, it it appears on the broad scale to to not be that high, uh, or certainly not as high as was originally anticipated are you uh, have we learned enough or is it is this a consequence of the of COVID not being as dangerous as originally anticipated or have we just been learning how to deal with it yeah i think you've got to be careful and not be misled by those numbers alec in the first instance while the official COVID death toll in south africa is as you say in the high fifty thousands. If you look at the Medical Research Council's excess natural deaths report, it simply takes the baseline of normal deaths in the country in a normal year. And it's statistically relevant data from a number of years. And it overlays the death rate of this year. And it is pointing towards more like 170,000 deaths. So that's more than three times the number you quoted and is a much more likely uh, scenario of deaths in the country. So that's part one. Part two is that there has been uh, quite a tight and significant lockdown. There have been precautions taken, and there are many, many people who are at risk who in their personal capacities are taking extreme precautions and have changed their lifestyles. And the deaths would have been much higher, undoubtedly, in the absence of those precautions. So my first point is, the deaths are much higher than what you're saying. And my second point is lifestyles have been materially impacted. In order to keep those deaths where they are, if people were behaving differently, there would be a much higher death. And then my third point is to say mortality is one measure, but don't also forget to measure the morbidity. And the morbidity has put enormous strain on uh, our healthcare systems in the public and the private sector, to the extent that health-seeking behavior has changed and non-COVID-related healthcare has been neglected. Many procedures have been deferred. Much fewer cancers have been diagnosed during the period. And that's not because they're not out there. It's just because people are avoiding the healthcare system Mm. for non-COVID-related issues. So the the picture I'm painting for you, Alec, is much worse worse deaths than you portrayed big uh, behavioral change, which is probably protecting us from aggravated death numbers and significant underlying morbidity. So that's uh, my conclusion, mm. my conclusion resoundingly is that the impact of this has been severe indeed, that the response that all the countries across the world, including our own, have taken has been appropriate and justifiable and that we urgently need to vaccinate everybody uh, to do our, our best to get back to, to normal living. A final question, Ryan. When we look forward to uh, what might happen in the next few months, this third wave from the data that you have so far, when might it peak? Do you have any understanding of that? Your, our view is that it peaks uh, you know, towards the first week of July. Um, but we, you know, unfortunately, much about this disease is unpredictable. And so we really do have to wait and see how far the climb on this third wave continues. At the moment, we're climbing steeply um, and we, we, we just don't know when it's going to stop. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, that it peaks sooner rather than later. And within the early part of July, that would be on expectations. Is it likely then, because one would be gritting teeth for the next three weeks, that uh, we'd need another lockdown to slow the growth? You know, that's fortunately not a decision that I need to take. It's one that our National Coronavirus Command Council needs to take and that the president is faced with. Uh, It is a very, very difficult decision indeed. We are at the point in Johannesburg and Pretoria where the COVID beds and ICU beds are nearing full capacity. 
And uh, I have personally been involved in six cases in the last 24 hours where I've been working to find beds for our members to ensure that every member has a bed when they're sick. Um, and I should reassure you that in all six cases, we did find a bed so far. But we're at that point again. We need to protect the healthcare system so that we can look after those that are ill. Uh, the most important message, uh, you know, lockdown or not, is for people to take precautions. And if I may just say something about those precautions for a moment, we've learned a lot about this disease in 18 months. And something we've learned that we didn't know in the beginning is that it spreads by airborne spread. It's micro droplet spreads that spread. So two meters of social distance is a minimum and may not be enough. Mask wearing is absolutely critical, critical, because those micro droplets do not get through good quality masks. So wear a mask. And most importantly, probably of all the advice, is, th is stay home. Or if you're going to go out, stay outdoors where there's a good, ve well-ventilated area, because that blows those infected micro droplets away. Being indoors in confined spaces and poorly ventilated spaces is by far the greatest risk. Um, if it were up to me and I had to make a decision today, I would, I would try and avoid all gatherings of any size indoors, wherever I could. Uh, I would want to probably sustain the economy by not closing down industry. So I would want industry to continue. I would be investing heavily in a high-speed vaccination campaign quickly getting through the remaining four and a half million in this phase two, and then extending that to the you know, economically active younger people in the population as quickly as I could, including those living with chronic illness. Um, and there's an imperative to do so. Mass gatherings at the moment are a very bad idea. Our guest uh, co-host on a Thursday night, Pit Fulun, joins us now with, well, some interesting personal news, Pit. We are in the virtual studio, which is all cool, but we couldn't be in a studio together today. Yeah, it's probably best not to be together tonight. Uh, as I tested COVID positive, so I need to be in isolation. And how did that come about? Where, uh, did, did you have symptoms? I, uh, yeah, I had symptoms. I started getting sick on Monday, started developing a bit of a cough, and then I went for a test, and it came back positive. So I, um, like many other people, I've now uh, can say I've had COVID, or I have COVID. Uh, but uh, the good news is it's it's not bad. I had one bad day, and I've been getting better every every day since then. So it's for you, but you're a healthy guy. You do a lot of exercise. I do, I do. So I try and keep healthy, which I think is uh, probably one of your best defences. Uh, we uh, we were talking a little earlier in the program with uh, Ryan Note from Discovery, and they have been uh, warning that this third wave, or he says this third wave could be pretty difficult on the country. I asked him if he would, uh, if he were making the rules, if he would put us back into a lockdown. And he said, well, thank goodness it isn't up to him to make that decision. But from an economic perspective, if that were to happen, what would it do to the country? And, uh, you know, can we actually sustain this thing without going into lockdown? Yeah, I think it would be very bad for the economy. And, and I think lockdowns have been shown to have very little effect over time as, as to stopping the spread of, of the disease. Um, it, it spreads and then it stops spreading. And we've seen first, second, third wave and lockdowns, but no effect on that, neither here or in any other country. What lockdown does have, and which is never measured, is it has massive unintended negative consequences to the economy and to the health of people in the economy because people get too scared to go to hospital for normal routine things even, which then leads to adverse health consequences down the line somewhere. So so I would, I would uh, agitate very strongly against uh, uh, any sort of lockdown going forward. Peter, just anecdotally, we here at BizNews have known of a lot more people who are COVID positive this time around uh, than in the previous two waves. Has it mm. been a similar experience for you? Yeah, I must say I've, I've heard of a lot of friends and acquaintances and family members that are, have, have gotten ill. And in other words, not just a positive test, but positive test plus symptoms. In other words, actually have COVID. Um, a lot more of that. Uh, but fortunately or thankfully, um, nobody so far that I know of has gotten seriously ill. Mm. Not in, not hospitalized, in other words. Not hospitalized, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, this uh, this pandemic is still with us, and we shall only know, according to Disco, according to Ryan Note, uh, it, their calculations suggest that the third wave will peak out 
in the first week of July. So there's still a couple of pretty rough weeks to come. Markets, though, continue, and especially in the United States, uh, as though uh, COVID is now behind us. Yeah, I mean, the market is fully discounting reopening. And I think we've seen that in the, mar- in the market or economies where vaccinations have taken off strongly and where, uh, you know, almost herd immunity, if you can call it that, has been achieved through the vaccination process. People just go back to normal behavior very, very quickly. I mean, at the end of the day, the human being is a social animal, wants to socialize, wants to get out there and do things, experience things. Uh, and I think you'll see that behavior reverting back very, very quickly. And that's exactly what's happening in places like USA, UK, and now increasingly Europe as well, as they've gotten their vaccination program on track. So if you have a look at property stocks in particular, which have really been hit hard uh, by the uh, COVID pandemic, if you extrapolate human beings going back to, uh, to normality, would that not suggest that those property stocks might be really undervalued now? I think so, but as with all these things, there's always. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I think the pandemic has led to some, you know, behavioural changes. Uh, I think uh, this work from home thing is going to take uh, take a long. It's going to take a long time for people to go fully back to work, if ever. I think uh, a lot of us have found that work from home works. Uh, and they can function very well with that. And I think a lot of people function, you know, you cut out the commute. That's an extra two hours a day. Some people can actually work or relax or whatever. Um, I think it, it leads to more pro- higher productivity that way. In certain instances, not all instances, in certain instances. So, so that will be a headwind for office space, I think. I think online shopping has become more prevalent, more accepted, uh, easier to use. Uh, companies have become more efficient at uh, selling online. So I think uh, that will be a headwind for some of the retail-facing um, properties. Um, uh, so I think there are some headwinds. I think there's, uh, the, the, you know, the days of ever-increasing rents are over. Uh, so as long as one can factor those into it, then I think um, – you will find that there still are, you know, they might not be as cheap as they look, but there's still some bargains to be had in the property sector. So be careful. You, It, it isn't yeah. just a, yes. a slam dunk. Uh, we exactly. saw the financial results today out from the Fashini Group. Uh, I'm not sure if you had a chance to look at them, but they they do seem to have been under a lot of pressure. They do seem to be, you know, on the headline, it looks like a lot of pressure. But remember, this includes six months of lockdown. The first six months of the year was from 1 April last year to September, which was the worst of the brunt of lockdown. And then the second six months was a lot better, you know, as the economy opened up. Um, But, yes, uh, I think all the upper-end retailers have been under pressure for years, Not not just over the pandemic period. But for years, their operating margins have been declining. If you look at Fashini, look at Truist, look at Woolies, all the retailers' operating margins have been declining for seven to ten years as the high end of the market has become under pressure in South Africa and also as more competition has come in. Zara, H&M, all these people have come in. So it's a tough space. Um, uh, so, But I do think that there are some of the better operators can start coming out of this now and there might be some investment opportunities coming up over the next while. Any in particular you can share? Well, you know, I think if one looks at who is best adapting to the online space, uh, I think that's probably the, the, the thing to look at. Uh, and I think the Fushini Group is one of those that have been able to do that quite well. We also saw last night, late yesterday afternoon, Sassel coming out with an announcement on its hedging strategy. Now, this is interesting because almost like South African Airways, uh, they've lost money on their hedging strategy in the past. And th- the rationality of hedging uh, when you are a company like this that is exposed to the currency moves and to the oil price moves seems to be smart. But if you get it wrong, it, it can really cost shareholders. It can. And I think Sassel have been pretty much on the receiving end of getting it wrong historically when they decide to hedge. So, so, so for me, uh, you either hedge all of the time or you hedge none of the time. Unfortunately, a company like Sassel has to hedge because of their high debt situation because the bankers want certainty about the cash flow. So they have to put hedges in place. But they seem to be arbitrarily moving these things around as the oil price moves around. So I don't, you know, I read that. I don't understand what they've done there. It's all very complicated. Um, uh, but the fact is that I don't think over time, if you look at the returns on capital, that Sassel covered themselves in glory with any of the hedging programs ever because it's all arbitrary stuff. Mm. So if you were to be a 
company that is exposed towards uh, the the movements in commodity prices. We saw, yeah. for instance, many of the gold mines decided not to hedge at all. Uh, mm. But but then others said we're trying to run a company here, so we do need to lock in when we perceive the prices to be high. As an investor, how do you look at that? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, it's very hard to perceive when prices are high and when prices are low. To, to forecast those things, you know, to say today's price is high and in the future prices are going to be lower, that's very hard. Um, and I think most people tend to get carried away by high prices. They think high prices will just continue there and low prices the same thing. So, so again, when you're hedging, I think you either hedge all of the time or none of the time, and you take all the guesswork out of it because, you know, if you're going to only hedge when you think prices are high, you're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. Uh, so rather not do it or do it all of the time uh, and just take the guesswork out of it. And then you as an investor can make up your mind. Exactly, exactly. At Bright Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's thought leadership feature made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, it was barely a fortnight ago that we spoke with Neil Froneman, the chief executive of uh, Sibanya Stillwater, about an issue that has been bugging him for many years. And, well, hey presto, today, Neil, uh, we have the president saying not only will you be able to uh, increase, not only is it is the country increasing the cap on uh, allowing private companies to build power plants from uh, where it was at, at, at one megawatt, but it's actually gone beyond the 50 that most were thinking of, up to 100 megawatts, which presumably will go uh, right, will help you in your plans uh, in making sustainable energy here in South Africa. Yes, absolutely, Alec, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, yeah, it's, it's really good news, and, um, and it's pleasing that, uh, that it's eventually come through. It just blows my mind that it takes so long, and, um, and, and there's no doubt it's going to release a lot of additional investment, um, but we're not going to see the, the results tomorrow. It's one of these things that was always on the back end, it created risk because uh, anything above 10 megawatts, you had to go to NURSA, the regulator, and get approval. And you could only do on th- that on the back end of your project, which created risk, you know. And risk means uh, uh, a higher discount factor when you calculate uh, uh, returns and so on. But it's good news, Alec. It's good news. We need much, much more of these type of, let's call it, reforms that, are, that we see here today. How long have you been at it to try and put your own power plant together at Sibanya? Yeah, look, we, we've been at it since probably about 2015. Um, we did back off uh, for a period um, and, um, and, and really started pushing again a few years back. And, and again, you know, this, this is, is just one aspect, a very important aspect. I think the the transformation of Eskom is is absolutely necessary because we've still got to get to the point where we can wheel power uh, between our operations because we've already now lost four or five years of life of mine. And as you know, you need that in a power purchase agreement to offset uh, um, the the cost of these plants. So, so you know, we 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 need more, but uh, it's been a long haul. And how big a plant would you like to build? Well, you know, and again, this is the sad thing. It started off for our gold business at 150 megawatts when uh, we first started, and that was three modules of 50 megawatts. Um, Five years later, we've only got half the life left of our gold business, so there's only one 50 megawatt uh, module we're going to put in our gold business. The good news is that we're looking for just under 400 megawatts for our PGM business, and that'll be about 250 megawatts of of solar power or photovoltaic power, and the balance being uh, wind. Um, but the longer you take, uh, the less your requirement for for this, because you know our resources get depleted. So you're specifically going to go for renewables? A- absolutely. Um, and 
Um, as I've said on, on your, your program before, there's, there's two reasons. The one is uh, it's cost – well, there's three reasons. It's cost-effective. We need reliable supply, uh, and we have to uh, get our carbon uh, um, emissions down. And uh, otherwise, we're going to have severe problems uh, selling our product, products in future. Neil, I don't quite understand it. The president today said that it's the cap has gone from one megawatt to 100 megawatts, but you need 400. Are you still going to have to go through a regulatory process to get that installed? Yes, yes. We will still, for, for anything over 100 now, um, but the, 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 the PGM... Um, uh, projects are a little bit longer term. So that's built into our assessments. And remember, we, we really are quite new into, into that part of our business. Um, so it's not really, um, it's, it's not really going to constrain us. We've already factored it in. It, I think there are, there are now other issues that are needed to, to, um, unblock the process even even further, but certainly our gold project now, the 50 megawatt cap that we, we well, uh, the, the, the 10 megawatt cap that was in place uh, that's now 100 allows our 50 megawatt uh, project on our gold business to, to now spring into action. Eh? So you're going to call the board together or have a round robin with the other directors and say, here we go, we've now got it, can we please sign off and, and do the investment? Yes, absolutely. Um, we will take it to our investment, investment committee at its uh, next sitting. How big an investment is it in a 50 megawatt uh, power plant? Yeah, um, the, the, total, the total investment for the, the, the 400 uh, to 500 megawatts is, uh, is about four to five billion rand. So the, these are, are big. I can't remember exactly what the 50 megawatt uh, unit is, but the total was in the region of uh, of, of five billion rand. Eh? Pit Fulion is with us. Pit, uh, we've we've heard that South African companies have got trillions uh, on their balance sheets that they haven't been investing because they haven't seen much of a future in the country or for whatever other reason. This is surely something that might open up um, the uh, open up their wallets because if on the one hand. It's a productive investment when you you get power, and on the other hand, it reduces the risk of Eskom not being able to supply. Yeah, I guess the the key question for me would be: um, Does the fact that there is more certainty around power supply to your minds warrant spending money on extending their life? Because the reserves are there; you just need to spend money to to access them. Is that a consideration that uh, Neil that uh, that you guys are thinking about? Uh, absolutely, Pete. Um, and and again, it, it really comes down to when you when you look at a, an internal rate of return or a a net present value, you, you factor in risk. And, and when you can't, uh, you can't quite pinpoint reliability of electric power, which is key to a business, um, you up the risk factor and, and therefore the discount factor. So this will definitely open up um, more opportunities. Uh, it'll, it'll lower the discount rate uh, for projects in general, but it also opens up very significant uh, foreign investment opportunities for for countries that want to come and play in the renewable energy space. Just explain that the discount rate in easy to understand terms for people who aren't uh, that close to corporate finance. Yeah, so so when you when you look at a um, future cash flows, um, um, you know, cash next year is worse is worth less than it is this year. And, and, and that's a discount rate. Now, when you work out a discount rate, it's obviously based on, on current interest rates. But you have to also add in risk factors such as uh, country risk, um, project risk. And, and, of course, that takes your, your, your interest rate up um, a couple of percentage points. And the higher the risk, the, the, the higher that discount factor is, which means that your project be, be effectively becomes worse less and less. So if you can reduce those risks, um, projects that are marginal suddenly become uh, profitable and, uh, and, and, and you have a lot more investment. Um, and that's the economics that, unfortunately, our government doesn't really understand.
But it is a multiplier effect then, in other words. But Pitt, from, from your perspective, if you've got others thinking the way that Neil's thinking, surely this could spark a boom or at least a mini boom of sorts. Yeah, I, I think it's it, it's possible. Um, uh, certainly, as Neil says, brings down discount rates uh, and allows companies to invest into the future, not only in power generating capacity, but also the physical life of mine. So it could, I'm not saying it will, but it could kick off uh, quite a good CapEx cycle in the sector, given where commodity prices are and where a lot of people expect them to go. I think all the all the cards are falling into place there. If I may just ask a question to Neil. Um, you said, that, and we all welcome this relaxation of controls over power generation, but you said there's a couple of other things that, other issues that need to be unblocked. Uh, what are those, and do you think any progress has been made on those? Yeah. So, 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 Pete, I generally call it uh, we, we don't have a, an investor-friendly environment. It could be much more friendly. And, um, you know, that's the, one, of, one of the issues is power, and, and we're, getting, uh, we're getting solutions there. Other is, uh, you know, secu- uh, uh, um, uh, legal tenure you know, in terms of owning assets. So we need to stop talking about expropriation of uh, not just land. Um, we, not, we need to stop talking about nationalization. Um, we need to get our, our fiscal discipline as a, as a country uh, back on track because, uh, you know, we keep on get, getting downgraded. So the cost of, of raising money is getting more and more expensive. Um, and and you know what I can just say that the economic recovery plan. When last did we hear a um, or get any feedback? I think uh, you know that was tabled in October last year. I I know of no um, no progress update. This is the first bit of news that has come out of government that is constructive in my view in terms of. Uh, trying to to reboot the economy. Neil, you do operate uh, in an uh, environment where you know many other CEOs and others who are perhaps also considering whether or not to reinvest or in, do fixed investment into South Africa. Could this be a trigger? Could this be a spark, the spark that we're all waiting for, for this economy to come back to life? Um, you, you know what? It's 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 one of those things, and and I think uh, when I heard uh, Pitt talking, he was he was being uh, cautious. I would be cautious because this is still a a bit of a flash in the pan. We we need to see uh, significantly more movement on reform, economic reform. Um, and yes, I know that the government's been focusing on on COVID and vaccines, but. Uh, you know, we, 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 are, we are slowly bleeding to death as a country here because there's not enough reform. So it's a move in the right direction, but certainly a long way from the finish line. Pete, uh, last question from your side. Uh, yeah, the other thing I would like to ask, Neil, um, in terms of ESCOM itself, um, I've heard from some other corporates that things are improving gradually there under, under the writer. Um, is that your experience as well, or are things still very much stuck in a bad place? Um, no, I, I think Andre is doing a good job. Um, what I think is the, the, the facts of the matter is that it, this, the situation is worse than perhaps what we um, see. What I think is critical is to see the transformation that has been planned around Eskom as well. In other words, splitting it into a, a generating division, a transmission uh, division and so on, because then we'll get a real commercial underpin to the the, the energy sector where we can start um, trading energy um, through wheeling, which is one of the constraints I mentioned earlier on. Um, but listen, we need Eskom and we, we need it to work. It's baseload. Uh, it's also got to transform from a um, you know, from from a, it's a, a clean energy point of view. But Eskom's got a role to play. Um, I think Andre is doing a good job and uh, and we need to give him space and renewables and self-generation will, will give him that space um, to, to reposition Eskom. Before we let you go, Neil, have you been engaging much with people in government after uh, your outburst, in inverted commas, uh, about the, the issues that you faced on renewable energy? Um, I've, I've had a couple of conversations. Um 
and and I think what is is happening, if uh, if I can couch it in these terms, there's uh, um, there's no doubt that there's been a lot of uh, pressure put on government. Uh, by comments made by, I suppose, myself and others. But what I'm seeing is a recognition, very pleasingly, a recognition that um, mining's contribution to, to, the, to, to, to the fiscus and, and, and now representing just under, I think, 20% of, of GDP uh, is, is putting mining back where it belongs. It's not a sunset industry in our country. It can make a big difference. Uh, to unemployment, uh, you know, inequality and, uh, and and poverty and so on, and that's getting recognition, and and hopefully that will that will also unblock some of these processes. Uh, it was interesting to me that that uh, our president announced the lifting of this cap, and not uh, not our minister. Um, it was that important. So um, I I I'm hopefully seeing a a few a few little seeds. This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. A South African living in Somerset in the United Kingdom has launched a campaign to get recognition for Job Maseko, a South African soldier who was a stretcher bearer for the Allied forces during the Second World War. Gillespie believes that Maseko, who single-handedly blew up a German ship, should have been given a Victoria Cross. He started a petition on change.org, which has had considerable support. He told Business that he believed that Maseko should have been given the same honours as other South Africans who fought in the same war. Well, I was writing my book, which is called Apartheid, Lives Divided, under my pseudonym Bill Duncan, I mentioned Job Masego there because my dad, when I was a little boy, mentioned this very brave African POW, as he was a prisoner of war in Tobruk, who had done this incredible brave feat of blowing up a German boat carrying military equipment, which was probably destined to El Alamein. So in, in some ways, I think it could have helped the Allied cause in winning that battle, even if it was in a small way. So is it true he used a condensed milk tin to make that bomb? Yeah, he, he went along and he, first of all, he, he thought about it and he thought, mm, this is probably a dangerous thing to do because he knew if he was caught, he would have been shot. I mean, there's no question about it. He'd have been executed. And, um, he went and got this empty condensed milk tin and filled it with some gunpowder, which he had, uh, got from some bullets that had, the Germans had dropped around and, and he filled up the condensed milk tin and then he managed to get himself a fuse. I think he must have, gone into these German stores and got himself a long fuse, which was 12 feet. And uh, he went on board the ship, which they were actually offloading. And he said to his friends, just distract the Germans while I place this condensed milk tin in some fuel. He emptied a a small portion of a drum of petrol onto the, the floor of the hold in the ship. And he put his condensed milk tin there and I believe a bit of straw, which he must have brought on board as well. And then he, he unraveled the fuse and lit it and then ran like anything and joined his friends on the shore and they went off back to their camp. And he thought there was nothing happening. So he thought, oh, the fuse must have snuffed itself out. And I think he barely said that. And there was this massive explosion and the ship sank so fast, apparently. And that was it. Yeah, I mean, he did this incredible thing, which really would have affected the, the German war effort adversely, I'm sure. So, Bill, how did your father get to know about the story of Job Maseko? Well, everyone knew the story. I mean, it was just went round from officer's mess to officer's mess. My dad was a major in the Transvaal Scottish. And they just, you know, like anything, it just done a very brave deed. It, it got around very quickly. And I think the fact that it was an African, it was just a, a bigger talking point because they were so in, amazed how this chap who actually volunteered, he, it wasn't really even his war, and he went and volunteered and he over and above that, went and made his own decision to do this incredibly brave deed. So how many black South Africans fought for Britain in the Second World War? There were 74,000 black soldiers that volunteered to go up with the native contingent, as it was called, and they went up north, and they were each attached to different regiments. I believe Job Masego was attached to the Middellansa Regiment, which is from the Karoo, and him and a few of his other peers were attached to that regiment, as were 
other blacks attached to other South African regiments as well. So, Bill, what are you trying to do now? Are you trying to get recognition for him in the UK? Yes, I am. I've tried to, well, I've raised a petition, which has been quite successful. It's had well over a thousand people uh, contributing to it. But I don't think I'm going to get very far with the Victoria Cross because they say it's got to be put in within five years of the, the deed being done. And unfortunately, they probably won't even look at it. But I feel that's so unfair because it wasn't Job's fault. I mean, the fact that he was black, there shouldn't be a statute of limitations or whatever you call it on the awarding of a Victoria Cross in that circumstances anyway. Why wasn't he given one at the time? No question that he was black. I mean, the, the people said that. I mean, the, even some British generals were um, in conversation. Actually, General Alexander was in charge of the North African campaign on the British side. He had his portrait painted by um, a gentleman called Mr. Neville Lewis. The intimation is that the general had actually said to him during the painting of his portrait that uh, you know, this African should have got the Victoria Cross, but uh, the South African authorities gave him the military medal, which is, well, it is the lowest medal that you can get for bravery. And uh, it's just sad. The whole thing was just sad. Do you think South Africans can put pressure on the UK to give him this award? Definitely. I mean, South Africa was fighting for the UK government, for, for, British, for the British Empire. And uh, I think they should. They should actually put pressure on, on the British Empire, if not a Victoria Cross, but certainly something like a statue or, or some other recognition in Britain for Job Maseko. Well, they're pulling down so many statues of African colonialists. Should they replace it with that? Absolutely. I think uh, let's recognize the people that really deserve them are, are more current than, than those old uh, people that probably don't deserve them anyway. What happened to Maseko after the war? That wasn't the end of his brave deeds. The Germans were filling the, the POW's heads with the fact that the war was already won by Germany and the, the Germans had taken Cairo and they'd taken the Suez Canal and it would be just a matter of time that they went through Palestine, Syria and joined up with the Axis forces in, in Russia. And then basically the impression they gave was that, oh, the war's won, so you people mustn't even try and think of escaping. So Job went and stole a, the equivalent of a transistor radio, I think it was just a wireless, from the Germans or the Italians, and he went into a cellar where there was an unexploded bomb that had uh, fallen from probably the British, I guess, could have been the Germans as well, and it was lying in the cellar and exploded and had uh, signs around it in German saying, beware, don't come close here because there's an unexploded bomb in the cellar. But he went down into the cellar and he listened to the radio from day to day and, and he got through to the BBC and the BBC soon gave the impression that Germans were nowhere near winning the war and that the war was very much still on the go. So that's when he decided to escape and him and another chap escaped and they walked they took, I believe, nearly 21 days to get back to the British lines at Mercer Matru. He rejoined his unit again, and he was a stretcher bearer during the Battle of El Alamein, I believe. But despite this, he died in poverty in South Africa. Yes, I believe that the, all they got was a, two pairs of boots and a bicycle as a thank you for having done this incredibly wonderful thing of going up north to fight for Britain. And that's all they got, whereas I believe that the white soldiers got quite a lot more. I'm not sure what they got, but I believe that some of them got farms or help with buying farms or property. So there was a huge difference about, um, you know, between the races on, on, on the, the awards or rewards they got. His bravery was, however, recognized in South Africa. Only since um, the new dispensation after 1994, when uh, President Mandela came into power, there was a frigate called the Gwobi Kutsia, which was named after an old uh, Afrikaans minister. And they replaced the name to Joe Busego. And I believe there's a road in Kwatema location near Springs, which is named after him. And then, of course, there's a school, the Joe Busego Primary School. But these have all just been named after him since the new dispensation in South Africa. Have you spoken to the Victorian Cross Trust or appealed to them? I haven't appealed directly, but I've had from a, a number of people that they won't look at it. And one of the newspapers, I can't remember which one, apparently did contact the people that award these uh, medals and things, and they said, no, forget it. It's, it won't happen now. 
But since then, I've heard there's an Australian who did a brave feat in um, 1942, and he apparently just recently, in 2018, managed to get the VC. So whether Australia has got a different way of, of, of getting things with the Britain, I don't know. But that's a fact, apparently, that he got this uh, VC posthumously, I believe it was. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.